Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That is the core question, right, that Jesus asked in this story. A profound question standing on its own, right, which is often how we hear it. Right, we read this little section of scripture isolated from the rest of the story, not paying attention to where we are and, and what's going on around us as we stand here with, with the disciples and with Jesus. But I think, I think we're going to hear that question differently this morning. We're going to hear it differently when we hear it in its wider context, when we pay attention to place, because remember, place matters, Right? Place matters. So when we, read, when we read in the Bibles, if you look at the start of verse 13, when we read verse 13, we need to stop and get our bearings on where Jesus is and why he's here. Matthew moves us with Jesus to Caesarea Philippi, right? 13 says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Pause there. Okay, so what? We need to stop and ask, where is that? Why does that matter? We'll see that Caesarea Philippi isn't on the way to anywhere. It's not, it's not a stopover. Jesus had to intentionally choose to go there. He had to intentionally choose to have this conversation, to ask this question in that place. Why? Why there? Why now? Look at our map with me again this morning. We've been looking at this map throughout our time together during Lent. Remember what we've learned. Okay, quick review. What we've learned about Jerusalem and Judea to the south down here, and what we've learned about Galilee up north here. Jerusalem and here in Judea, this region in the south, that is where you, were, you had to be if you're going to have any kind of future as a religious leader in Israel. Down here is where the religious and political power was established that covered the whole country. But so far, so far we know Jesus has spent almost all of his time way up here in Galilee, in this, in this region that was considered kind of a backwards region, kind of a backwoods location. It's where he grew up. It's the place that he called home. In Galilee was a diverse area where, where not only were there good Jewish cities and good Jewish people living up in this area, but it was littered with pagan cities and pagan people. So, so the people of Galilee did business, spent their days interacting not just with other good Jewish people, but with, with pagan people as well. So Jesus so far has kept us mostly up here in Galilee. But if you've been reading through Matthew, if you kept up with your reading for the week, you probably notice that Jesus has now expanded his travels outside of Galilee, only he hasn't gone where we would expect him to go. In fact, he's gone in the opposite direction, right? We know the end of the story. We keep thinking he's got to get down here to Jerusalem. He's got to get where the power and authority is down here. But when Jesus leaves Galilee, he doesn't start heading south. Instead, we read in the previous chapters that he heads west and he heads north up, up to the cities up along the coast here to Tyre and to Sidon, way up north, up here. 
And when he's done in Tyre and Sidon, he treks his way through the mountains here to the valley, and he drops down on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's there that he spends some time in the cities of the Decapolis. Okay, Brent taught us about the Decapolis a little bit last week. It's a grouping of 10 cities all throughout this area here on the, on the east side of the Jordan River mostly, and they're, and they're all Greek cities. There, there are 10 Greek cities, and Jesus goes and spends this time in those Greek cities of the Decapolis. Okay, and then we read in the chapter before where we're at now that he spends some time right on the shore of the lake here, and, uh, and that's where he multiplies the bread and the fish, feeds 4,000 miraculously, and it's awesome. And, and then it leaves us by telling us that Jesus hopped in a boat with his disciples, went across the lake, and he's back now on the on the western side of the lake, back into good Jewish territory again after all this traveling throughout this, throughout this area. I can hear in your mind already, so what? So, so what, what does all this little travelogue you just gave me mean? Well, remember I just told you that this whole region of Galilee, and, and especially up to the north, is littered with with pagan cities where, where people stood in opposition to the Jewish faith. And to any educated Jewish teacher, to any good Jewish person who was concerned about staying pure, these were places to be avoided. Right? This, was, this was enemy territory, these pagan cities. And the tour that we just followed now, we just saw Jesus take with his disciples was a grand tour of some of the most prominent pagan cities in the whole area. All of these cities that Jesus took his disciples to were historic centers of Canaanite pagan worship. They were locations of, of tombs of ancient kings who are now revered as gods. They were, they were cities where you'd find temples dedicated to, to these pagan gods. So, so follow the trip. He started up north, right, in, in Tyre. The city of Tyre was, was the home to the ancient god Milkart. Milcar, also known to the Greeks as Heracles. You'd find his temple there. In fact, he's known as king of the city. That's so much how Tyre was dedicated to this, to the worship of this god, Milkart. And then Sidon, remember, Jesus went up from Tyre up to Sidon. That Sidon was the home of the goddess Astarte, the god of fertility and war. And then we know, we know from history, maybe you read about them, the, the pagan fertility rites that would go on in a temple like that, something any good Jew would be, would be totally opposed to, would avoid at all costs. So anti-God, so anti-pure. Okay, and then remember Jesus went over to the Decapolis? Ten Greek cities. So you, you'd introduce all your Greek gods, like Apollos and Jupiter and Zeus, and, and all of a sudden you're in the, in the region of all these Greek gods. And so when Jesus finally hopped in the boat and took his disciples back across the lake and they set foot on the, on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee, they they probably all breathe a sigh of relief. Whew, we're back in good Jewish territory again. We're back where it's safe. Jesus took them on, this, on this, this tour that went in the opposite direction that they were totally comfortable. Opposite, not only geographically, they wanted to go south to Jerusalem, but, but opposite religiously. 
into the heart of pagan idolatry. And now, whew, we're back home again. And now we come to our passage this morning, and we read that Jesus immediately now takes them on a 25-mile hike up north to the city of Caesarea Philippi. So we left them here just on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, 25 miles north up this valley, a beautiful highway there, up here to the city of Caesarea Philippi, right at the base of Mount Hermon, up to Caesarea Philippi. So whatever relief they experienced by finally being back in Jewish territory, it quickly disappeared for them. Because of all the cities that Jesus had taken them to on their pagan city tour, Caesarea Philippi was the absolute worst. Not only did all good Jewish parents tell their teenage children, stay away from Caesarea Philippi, any good rabbi, any good preacher told all his congregants, stay away from Caesarea Philippi. Any good Jewish person would say, I'm not going there. It was the Las Vegas of Israel. It was Sin City. You see, Caesarea Philippi was home to the god Pan. If you want to know what Pan looks like, the, the god Pan, you need to look at this picture. Here's Pan for you. We know him by another name. Anybody recognize him? Who is that? Oh, come on. I can't hear you. Mr. Tumnus, thank you from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. My favorite character in that movie, okay? Mr. Tumnus is Pan. They made him look just like the god Pan, okay? Because Pan was half goat and half man, and he was the god of the wild. He was the god of shepherds and flocks out in the wilderness, out in the field, okay? Only the difference between Mr. Tumnus and Pan, if you've seen the movie, Mr. Tumnus is a nice guy. We like him. Pan's not nice at all. Pan is the opposite of nice. But they refer to him as a god of fright. A god of fright. It's his name that you get the word panic from. The story goes like this. Pan, th this god of the wilderness, the god of, of, of wild places, every afternoon would take a nap. He loved his afternoon nap like some of us wish we could have, right? And, and every once in a while when somebody would disturb Pan's nap, he would wake up angry and he would roar. And all your shepherds and all your people out in the wild who were close enough to hear that roar knew that Pan was angry and they would go into a panic because you're scared of this horrible, mean God, Pan. You do anything to keep him satisfied, to keep him happy. Okay, so being, being this rustic God, a God of the wild, Pan was worshiped in natural settings, which brings us here to this place, right here. This is the cave of Pan in Caesarea Philippi. Okay, and Matthew doesn't tell us specifically, but it makes sense to me to think that he took his disciples close by to this, maybe, maybe across the Jordan looking at it just like we are from this picture. After all, this is what Caesarea Philippi was really all about. This is the center of what we're talking about in this city. This is Pan's home 
where people came to worship him, where people came to appease him. This immense rock formation, this cliff was the perfect setting to worship a rustic god of the wild. The sheer cliff face communicates power and might. So all along this wall, off to the right of the cave there, you'll find carved niches like these, where, you would, where you'd set the statue of the god Pan, and people could come line up all along this cliff face, and they could come and worship Pan, keep him happy, bring their sacrifices, make sure he's not angry at you. You got to keep them happy. But at this location also was, as we just saw, this massive cave, a huge cave. And let me tell you that if you were to look at the same, if you were to stand in the same place and look at this, when Jesus was looking at it, it would look very different. Because a major earthquake reshaped how this, how this river, this is the River Jordan, it reshaped how this land works. Because in Jesus' day, you wouldn't have seen the river running past the cave. You would have seen the river flowing right out of the cave. Because the cave was a, an underground spring that started the Jordan River. You'd see water pouring out of the mouth of this cave. And the pool of water within this cave was so deep that nobody in Jesus' day had ever been able to measure the bottom. They hadn't found the bottom. It was a bottomless pit, which earned it the name, the gate of Hades, the gate of hell. Right? They believed that it was from this hole in the ground that had no bottom, that, that you could access the underworld, that the gods who lived in the underworld would come up to the to the earth through this hole in the ground, out of this cave. This is the gate of hell. And so they realize it's a perfect place to throw your sacrifices. If you want to appease the evil gods down below, throw your sacrifices in this pit, in this water. Keep the gate of hell closed. Keep them down there satisfied because you don't want them coming up. You can imagine now seeing the wall where you're worshiping pan, seeing this pit where they're throwing their sacrifices. Why good Jewish parents and teachers told everybody, why don't you just stay away from there? Stay away. Well, Jesus goes right there. Jesus takes his disciples right there, watching the people worship pan in order to keep him happy and satisfied, watching them throw their sacrifices through the gate of hell to keep the evil there in check. And here stands Jesus with his disciples, surrounded by people terrified of this pagan God who's a lie and a deception and a fictional fear. And with that background, he asks a question. Start reading with me, verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I'll pause there for a moment. 
Who do people say that I am? Remember, they just finished this pagan city's tour. And now standing here in front of this historic pagan temple with people funneling in and out of their worship of Pan, this question suddenly carries more weight, doesn't it? This question suddenly carries greater significance. Jesus is, is asking them, so in comparison to Melkart back in Tyre, and in comparison to Astarte back in Sidon, and in comparison to all those other Greek gods that we saw in the Decapolis and people worshiping there, and in comparison to Pan right here that you're staring at, who am I? Am I just one more option for them and for you to consider? Am I just one more power for people to appease and to keep on their good side? Am I just one more offering on the menu of gods to pick from and the favorite one that for Jewish people to pick? Who am I? And Jesus asked, first of all, who, who does everybody else say that I am? What are you hearing? So the disciples fill him in on the rumor mill, right? They say you're a prophet, Jesus. Herod Antipas, who, who's ruling over Galilee at the time, thought he was John the Baptist. John the Baptist come back from the dead to haunt him. Some people thought he was Elijah. Elijah, they interpreted the Old Testament scripture to say Elijah's gonna come back and, and kind of lead the way for the Messiah to come. And some are saying you're, you're Elijah, preparing the way for the Messiah. Others say you're Jeremiah, because they look back at Jeremiah's story, how Jeremiah spoke words of, of warning and doom and how the, the leaders oppose him at every step, and they see you, Jesus, doing the same thing, speaking words of warning and how all the leaders are opposing you, and they think you're, you're just like Jeremiah. People are saying you're him. And, and, and suddenly Jesus isn't really all that interested in, in the rumor mill. And so he asks them directly in verse 15, he looks at them in the eye and says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Own this answer for yourself. Who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who finds his voice and he declares the truth about Jesus, about what sets him apart from all these other gods that they've seen on their pagan god tour. What sets him apart from, from Pan, who they're looking at right in front of him. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Suddenly, no more, you're a great rabbi. No longer, you're a really good teacher, Jesus. No more, you know, I think you're a political instigator. Come to, to save us from the Romans. Uh-uh. From this moment on, you're nothing less than the Christ, the Messiah true God above all other gods, right? And with that aha moment of truth laid out there clearly for them to see for the very first time, with that reality acknowledged here, here, remember place, here in the presence of this, this great rock wall of Pan, in the presence as they're looking at this cave, the, the, the gate of hell itself, suddenly Jesus' response takes a little more meaning. 
a little more power. Listen to what he says to them in verse 17. It says, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And can, can you see that? Can you picture that in your mind? Can you picture that moment with maybe with Jesus back to this great rock wall of Pan and all the disciples facing him and facing that rock? Jesus points directly at Peter and says, Peter, on this rock, on you, this rock, I'm going to build my church. Not that rock. On this rock, on you, my followers, you who live in faith, you who believe this unbelievable truth that I'm telling you, you are my rock wall. You are my rock wall temple. You are where my spirit will reside. The hearts of those who believe. Whoa. And, and with the disciples seeing th this cave out of the corner of their eye, Right, the, the gate of hell. Jesus says to them, even the gates of hell will not overcome you. Whatever powers of evil lie beneath the surface, whatever evil the depths of Satan might wish to and try to and maybe even successfully release into this world, know that they are no match for the power of me, Jesus says, for my power released in you. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, not only, not only will the gates of hell stay shut before you, but, but together we are gonna open the gates of heaven not only will you keep evil at bay with my spirit working through you, but we're going to open the gates of heaven and we're going to find a way to get into God's presence together. We are going to open the gates of heaven. It will be open through you, my people, my church. Do you see what a profound moment this is? What a profound message this is? The truth of Jesus, his purpose, his plan is revealed here for the very first time. Here in Caesarea Philippi of all places. About as far from Jerusalem as you can get. And it's not a coincidence at all that in verse 21, Matthew now changes our whole perspective. He changes our sight lines. Jesus focuses his attention now on a new place, a new location. Listen to verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. There's the pivot. There's the moment. From here on out, instead of, instead of teaching large crowds in Galilee through parables, from here on out, Jesus is teaching his disciples about his coming suffering and his death. 
from here on out. Instead of kind of mysteriously keeping the plan shrouded, from here on out, he reveals again and again to his disciples his plan. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. But I'm going to rise again. From here on out, Matthew just told us he's looking to Jerusalem, this place that he's been kind of avoiding all this time. He's got Jerusalem in his sights now. And his journey towards Jerusalem begins. Here in verse 21, Jesus answers his own question for us. Who am I? He answers it for his disciples. He answers it for us. Who is Jesus? From this moment on, after this truth is spoken, suddenly inspiring teacher doesn't cut it anymore. Suddenly, miracle worker, someone who multiplies fish and bread and makes the lame walk and the blind see and turns water into wine, that's not enough. From this moment on, suddenly prophet, speaking words of warning, not enough. From this moment on, Jesus sets his sight on the cross where he is going to suffer and where he is going to die. And that defines him as a savior. That's who he is. He is our savior, our God who loves us enough to sacrifice himself in our place, to pay the price for our sins, to die so that we might live, not to receive our sacrifices, but to be our sacrifice. He's our savior. And from that moment on, Jesus sets his sight not only on the cross, but he sets his sight on the empty tomb as well, where he will rise again. And that empty tomb defines him as our Lord, the Lord of our lives, the God who transforms us, who changes us by his resurrection power, transforms us both in this life and forever to be made in his image, to be his children reflecting him, to finally be perfected in his presence. Who am I? Who am I? I am your Savior, Jesus tells them. Your Savior, if you'll let me be. And I am your Lord, if you'll let me be. It's a pivotal moment in the gospel. It's a pivotal moment for you and for me. Because it's right here at this point with this passage that our ultimate journey is determined as well. So at the, end, at the end of this disciples' pagan city tour, right, with the glory and the power of the temple of Pan displayed behind them, Jesus asked this most important question, who, who am I? Who do you say that I am? It, it's a question that each one of us here today needs to answer for ourselves. And our answer, like Peter's, will define our ultimate destination, the end of our journey. It will define our perspective. It will define our purpose in life. It will define our eternity. It's a pretty important question. And your answer to that question will be a pivotal moment for you in this life and forever. And I assume that many of us here, like me, think we've got that answer all figured out already. It's an easy one, right? Of course I know the right answer. 
I agree with Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I've known that answer since I was just a child. I've been coming to church all my life to prove it. It's a fact that I can confidently assert the answer's easy. My guess is I'm not alone in quickly giving that response. Do me a favor. Close your Bibles. If you have your Bible out, put it away. Um, you can keep your outline and your pen open if you wish. Uh, go ahead and take the picture off the screen. Thank you. I, I want us to, to clear those things away because we're going to spend some time really looking at that question together. We're going to spend some time with Jesus this morning, going on our own journey with him. I want us to spend some time this morning in our prayer time. We're going to have an extended time of prayer. We're going we're to take Jesus' questions seriously for our own lives, going a bit deeper than just giving the answer that I've been trained to say. We're going to travel to a few different places together and let Jesus ask us in those locations, who am I? And we're not to answer. You see, if you're like me, I think we're, we're alike here. We, we kind of chuckle inside. At, we kind of laugh intellectually at the images we see of people worshiping a God like Pan, right? A half goat, half man myth? That's crazy. We're smarter than that. We know that, that the safety of our livestock doesn't depend on, on sacrificing to, to this mythical beast. And we laugh at, at this bottomless pit that, that they imagine, you know, is the stairway, is the gate letting out evil, right? We know there's a bottom to that pit. Go there today, there's not water in it anymore. You can see the bottom. It's right there. We laugh at, at, at those things. We aren't first century disciples in Caesarea Philippi having to choose between Jesus and Pan. We're smarter than that. But we do have our own gods, and we do have our own idols, and we do go worship at our own temples. And we worship at those places on a regular basis. All of us do. We may not realize we're doing it, but we do. And so this morning in our time of prayer, we're going to go to these places because remember, place matters. Place matters. In our prayer time, we're going to spend a few moments in front of our modern-day temples, and in front of each one, we're going to hear Jesus ask the same question he asked his disciples. He's going to ask to you, who do you say that I am? Right here. In comparison to this God, in comparison to this power, in comparison to this idol, who am I? And I'm going to invite you to honestly answer that question for yourself. So I realize we're going to, as we enter this time of prayer that some of you are going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Again, we're doing something different here this morning. We're pretty intellectual people most of the time. We don't like to come here and, and really deal with heart stuff. But I'm going to invite you to deal with some heart stuff this morning. I'm going to invite you into a heart conversation with God. Don't worry. You don't have to share it with your neighbor if you're worried that you're going to have to talk to your neighbor. No, you're not. This is you and God, a conversation with him. I want you to listen. Listen to a conviction that he might give you, to an instruction he might give you, maybe even to a correction or a word of grace and forgiveness that he might give you.
So I invite you, close your eyes if you would. We're going to spend the time in prayer. Let your imagination go as we take these journeys together. In your mind, start by by standing with me in front of your house, the house you drove away from this morning. Just stand in the front yard, looking at the front of your house. Make it spring or summer if you wish, so you're not standing out there in the cold. And look at all that's in front of you. This little corner of the world that, that is yours. You have this spacious house with room for all, more than enough room, and you walk in the front door and there's a kitchen with a refrigerator full of food. Your dining room where, where you can gather to eat it. You got, you got the living room, family room. Maybe it's your basement with comfortable seats. You can sink in and watch TV, read a book, surf the internet. You got a place that's your own, a comfortable place to lie down at night and rest. You can look off to the right and see the garage holding a car, maybe two, or maybe you have so much stuff that your garage is holding your stuff and not your car. You have a porch, a lawn. When summer comes, you're going to love being out there. It's what you call home, this little corner of the world that you call your own, a place where you are king, queen, where you have control. It's yours. And Jesus steps up and stands beside you on that front yard as you're looking at your house, as you're looking over your little kingdom. And he looks at you and says, who am I? In this place, with all this stuff, who am I? And our answer often is, well, you're, Jesus, you're the one who provides all this. That's your job, right? You are, your job is to provide me with all this stuff, to make sure I have enough. No, really, to make sure I have more than enough. You are the God who's supposed to make sure there's enough money in my bank account, enough food in my refrigerator, enough gas in the car. You're the God who's supposed to provide for me. That's what I expect from you. I give you my sacrifice of obedience, and you give me what I need. You provide. Or you, you Jesus, are the one, you're the one I turn to when I run short, when I can't get all that I need. I, I can provide for myself all of this stuff. I've earned all this. I've made all this. But when I run stuck, I turn to you. Standing with Jesus in front of the modern-day temple of our possessions, the modern-day temple of our little kingdoms, with our food stores and our treasury and our land, Jesus asks, who am I? Am I God here too? Lord Jesus, we stand next to you here in front of our temple. And we love our possessions. We love the comfort of our homes. We love the, the generosity with which you have blessed us. And honestly, we recognize that sometimes when we stand here looking at all that we own, whether it's standing in front of our house or looking at our bank accounts on, on our computer screen, we realize that we're standing and worshiping in front of our temple of greed that we've only used you, Jesus, to get what we want. Yes, we see you standing in front of us, but we look beyond you. And behind you, we see the temple of our greed, all our possessions, and that's where our heart really lies.
Forgive us, Jesus. As we stand here with all the possessions that we love so much, all the comforts and the toys, focus our eyes on you. And in our hearts to be able to honestly reply to you in this place, you are Lord. Journey with me to your favorite stadium. Take a seat in your favorite stadium. Maybe it's the uncomfortable bleachers of your high school gym, high school soccer field or football field where you can see the spotlight shining on you or dreaming the spotlight is shining on you. Maybe it's your favorite college basketball or football stadium, the big house, Spartan Stadium. I'm sitting at Comerica Park watching the Tigers. All these places where where we watch and we dream of glory, don't we? And as you sit there, Jesus comes and takes a seat next to you and he asks, hey, in this place, who am I? And our answer so often is, Jesus, you're supposed to be the one who brings me victory in whatever arena I'm living in, fighting in, striving in. It goes way beyond sports. Your job is to make sure that I win. You bring me victory. You bring me glory on the athletic field. You bring me victory and glory in my relationships. You make them all work just right. You bring me glory in my family as as my kids turn out well and everybody sees my kids and I'm so proud of them. You give me glory and victory in the new career that I'm pursuing, in the new job I'm applying for. You're the God who's supposed to make everything work well, to make me victorious. That's what I expect. I give you my sacrifice of obedience, and you make me a winner, Jesus. We're standing here in front of our modern-day temple of success and glory, in front of all these places where the spotlight shines on us, where we get to be center stage, where we find our value in being celebrated. And Jesus says, what about here? Who am I? Am I God here too? Jesus, this is humbling to have you sitting next to us in the temple where we worship ourselves, in the temple where we celebrate our own pride. You know how much we strive for our own glory. We strive for our purposes, for our success, that people will know our names, that people will respect and honor us. And we ignore you. We prefer you not to be in this place because we want center stage. We realize that all good things come from your hand, Father, and you do so often give us reason to celebrate in lives, in our lives. Reason for a healthy pride in what you've done. And we're grateful for that. But as you stand in front of us, don't let us look past you to our temple of pride and success and glory. Don't let us make that our goal in life. But Father, set our eyes, Jesus, on you. And let you be God in this place. Step with me into your local hospital room. For some of you, this is an un- the hospital is an unfamiliar building that you just drive past. 
Others of you have already stepped into an all-too-familiar hospital room or doctor's office. And maybe you're there with someone you love dearly. Maybe someone who's here. Maybe someone who's already gone. This is the place we go when we want a miracle, isn't it? That's what we expect. This is the modern-day temple where we worship our health, where we worship life itself, where we search for the fountain of youth. It's at this time in the form of a surgery or a medicine or a treatment. And so when Jesus steps into this room with us and stands there right beside us and asks, in this place, who am I? To you. The answer is easy. You're a miracle worker, Jesus. That's what I want from you. You are the healer. You are the God who is supposed to keep me healthy. You are the God who is supposed to heal me when I'm sick. You are the God who is supposed to heal everyone I love. That's what I expect from you. I will sacrifice obedience to you, and in return, you give me healing and wholeness and life. As we stand there in our modern-day temple of wor worshiping our bodies and worshiping every breath that we breathe, our very lives, Jesus asks, who am I? Am I God in this place too? Lord Jesus, we just expect you to fix all the brokenness in our lives. We expect you to be our miracle worker. And we're grateful for the times that you do. We're so thankful that you too are dissatisfied with the brokenness that sin has brought to this world. You do not celebrate the brokenness of our bodies. Your heart hurts with us. And you'd like nothing better than to give wholeness and healing. But we realize that, that that's not always the case. And so we dare to ask for healing. We dare to ask for strength. But at the same time, Father, we recognize that so often we, we worship life itself. We cling to these days and weeks and months and years like there is no future, like all is lost when life is over. Father, help us to see eternity. Help us to see your blessing and your goodness in this life and help us to see the open door into your presence forever and ever. Father, when we are tempted to worship at the temple of this life, at the temple of these breaths and these days and this experience, remind us that this is just a foretaste of glory divine. Remind us of your great plan to redeem us, to save us, to heal us forever and ever. In this place, Jesus, don't let us look beyond you to the temple of our lives, but help us to look straight at you and to worship you as our Savior and our Lord. Journey with me to your favorite weekend destination. Make it summer. Maybe it's the beach on a hot afternoon. Maybe it's the cottage that you love to go spend the weekend at your spring break destination. Where is the place that you escape to? Honestly, we probably don't really like to invite Jesus to come stand in that place because that's our time, right? This is where we can go to be free from any responsibilities or expectations, even from Jesus. This is where we go to get away, 
to forget everything and everyone else. And Jesus pulls up a chair at the beach next to you, takes a seat at your cottage with you, watches that sunset with you, and, and asks, me too? Is this where you come to forget about me as well? Who am I here? Do I have a place here? And honestly, too often, he's the uninvited and unwelcome intruder, isn't he? This is our temple to us, to freedom and fun, to hedonism, where we invest our time and our money into our own happiness and ease, and Jesus just gets in the way there. So we leave him behind for the weekend. And this morning, he sits there with us and says, what about here? Who am I? Jesus, we don't like to admit it, but there's places where we don't really welcome you. We let you be God over parts of our lives, but not always all of our lives. And, and this temple, this temple to our own happiness is where we hesitate to invite you in because you might challenge us. You might make us rethink some things. You might reset our eyes to focus squarely on you instead of looking past you. Father, give us courage to strive for true joy instead of brief happiness. Help us to bring you into these places and to hear what you have to say, the invitation you give, the path you lay out. Jesus, please take a seat right here in this room next to us. See Jesus sitting right next to you here this morning in this place, in the church. This is an easy one, right? Of all the places in life, of course Jesus is God here in this place, in this community. That's what we're all about. We're all about him. We're all about his kingdom here. Or are we? Maybe this is the most important place that Jesus comes and whispers in your ear, what about here? How about in this place? Who am I? Are you more interested in my kingdom or your comfort here? Are you more interested in my purposes or your preferences? Are you more interested in my compassion or working out your judgment? Are you more interested in dispensing my forgiveness or demanding your fairness? Are you interested more in my love or your ritual? What's more important to you? My transforming power or your family tradition? Jesus, forgive us because we have often made your bride, the church, our temple. We want things our way, our preferences our desires, our comfort, our ease, our plans, our judgments. And you come and you say, I invite you to look at me. See me in this place. When we're tempted, Jesus, to look past you and to worship at the temple of ourselves in this place, in this community, reset our focus, Father, to look squarely on your face and to let you truly be our Savior, 
the one who rescues us from sin, to let you truly be our Lord, the one who, who directs our paths, our ways, day in and day out. Help this place and us as part of this community, your bride, to worship only you. And so, Jesus, maybe for the first time we see, we see our temples behind you, all the things that we want you to do for us, to be our provider, to be our defender, to be our protector. And Jesus, you, you do do those things for us, but we make them our temples and we worship what you do. So refocus our sights to look squarely into your eyes, to see you for who you are, not what you do for us. Help us to worship you as our Savior who loves us, as our Lord who guides us, and to set aside all these other temples, all these other idols that would steal our love from you. Jesus, I don't know exactly what you've spoken to each one of us. I don't know what, what temple you have reminded us we've been worshiping that. What idol has risen to our sights? But Jesus, I pray that you'd whisper your grace and your forgiveness into our, into our ears and into our hearts right now. And I pray that we would see you standing right next to us. And we would, tr and we would be able to answer your question in all honesty. When you ask us, who am I? With all our hearts, help us to 